Well, it's good to be with you here this morning, here in the West Auditorium, the East Auditorium, as well as online, uh, to continue our series, Proverbs, The Art of Living Wisely. And if you're newer with us, my name is Brian. I look forward to looking at God's Word with you, where we will be primarily in Proverbs chapter 30. So uh, if you have a Bible with you and you want to turn to that, that would be helpful. Um, and as you turn there, uh, recently my father-in-law was sharing with me about being at a men's ministry event where, uh, kind of similar to our men's breakfast that we have here, uh, they had hundreds of men gathered at this particular event where the speaker asked of the crowd to kind of start off his talk if anyone in the uh, crowd would be willing to share what their spiritual gift was. Uh, and so which with that, uh, a man's hand uh, shot straight up and the speaker called on the man and he shouted out in the crowd. He said, well, I like to think of myself as a pretty humble guy. To which, yeah, same response. My father-in-law said there was like a, like, a, like a little bit of a pause and then just like an eruption of laughter from the guys. Like they just could not help uh, laughing at the irony that this man in the crowd seemed to be quite proud of just how humble he seemed to be as a gift in his life. And so humility and its pride counterpart, it's kind of a strange tension that humility, like the moment you think you have it, it's the guarantee that you have most certainly lost it. And when it comes to its counterpart, pride, the moment that you think you've beaten it, it's a sure sign you've come down with a severe case of it. And so Blaise Pascal, French theologian, he talks about this paradox uh, of the 17th century. He says it this way. He says, on behalf of God, speaking on behalf of God, he says, if man exalts himself, I humble him. If he humbles himself, I exalt him. And I continue to contradict him until he comprehends that he is an incomprehensible monster. <laughs> Last Saturday uh, at our men's breakfast, Pastor Adam, he brought to us uh, the reality of where Proverbs speaks about this, that James, the brother of Jesus, reiterates, where it says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves before God, and he will be the one to lift you up. And so there's this tension, this paradox between humility and pride. About eight years ago, there was a son who shared the eulogy at the funeral of his elderly father who had just passed. And he shared with it, uh, within that eulogy, a prayer that his dad regularly prayed. Uh, he came to faith later in life, and, and this was a prayer that he prayed uh, throughout the rest of his life. He said, or would pray often, God, help me to be humble. And when I become humble, that I would not know that I was humble, so that I might not become prideful about being humble. And so we see it, this, you know, this challenge of pride, but the virtue of humility, it is certainly a paradox, but it is a paradox that it is essential that we as followers of Jesus uh, dive into because the consequences of not are so dire. Christian author Oz Guinness, concerned about really the pervasiveness of pride in our lives, uh, said it this way, that when it comes to all the other sins, like unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all of that, he says they are mere flea bites in comparison to pride. Because it was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride, it leads to every other vice. It is the gateway to all other sins. It is the complete anti-state God of mind. Excuse me, anti-God state of mind. Really, pride is the opposite of the hymn that we just sang in the East Auditorium, the West Auditorium, we sang, you know, that we, rather you could say, than heed not man's empty praise, pride lives for. 
albeit ultimately empty, praise. Lives for praise. And so we're going to look at Proverbs chapter 30 and how really it reveals this dominoing spiral effect of when pride gets a foothold in our lives and how that unravels uh, to affect so much of our lives and beyond. And so follow with me, Proverbs chapter 30, starting in verse 11. It says, There are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers, those who are pure in their own eyes and yet are not cleansed of their filth, those whose eyes are ever so haughty, whose glances are so disdainful, those whose teeth are swords and whose jaws are set with knives, to devour the poor from the earth and the needy from among mankind." And so as we read that passage in its entirety, let's work our way back through it verse by verse as again, this domino effect we're gonna see and discover of how pride affects us. Number one, uh, pride rejects authority. Pride rejects authority. There are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. Summarized, there are those who curse and really reject authority, starting with the very first authority figures in their lives, their parents, and then it goes on from there. It's an inability to grow up from that childhood refrain. You know it well. You're not the boss of me. And it's to hang with you into adulthood. Late, the late Louis Smeads, he says that pride, in the religious sense, is refusal to let God be God that it's a grab for God's status for oneself. Pride is turning down God's invitation to be a creature in his garden and wishing instead to be the creator, to be independent, to be reliant completely on your own resources, that pride is the grand delusion. And so that's what pride is. Ultimately, it's to refuse the authority of God, to not let God be God, uh, to in hubris assume that you are the creator rather than the created. And once you reject authority, reject God's authority, reject outside authority, well then the only natural order of things is that from there it is your own pride that then becomes your authority. Your own pride becomes your authority. Verse 12, you become like those who are pure in their own eyes and yet are not cleansed of their filth. That when you become pure or you become you know, awesome in your own eyes, it makes you blind to the filth. It makes you blind to your own blind spots in your life. Some of you may remember the go-to line of the flamboyant former NFL wide receiver Terrell Owens, known as T.O., that often after making a big play, he would, he would exclaim, I love me some me. I love me some me. In other words, I am awesome in my own eyes. Yet, despite football stats that would suggest him a shoo-in into the NFL Hall of Fame, he was not initially inducted due to the effects of his attitude and the influence of his pride and his hubris on his team, really, off of the field. He was, you could say, blind to his own blind spots, and it tainted his otherwise impressive talents. Terrell Owens, he would have been wise to heed the words of Proverbs 27, where it says, let someone else praise you and not your own mouth, an outsider and not your own lips. You see, pride is its own trumpet, wrote Shakespeare, and whatever praised itself but in the deed devours the deed in the praise, in the self-praise. 
And so as you reject the authority of God and others, as you become your own authority, then the poison of pride, it moves from you, then beginning to affect and infect others. The poison of pride infects, you could say, your life's relationships. Pride infects your life's relationships. Verse 13, it's whose eyes are ever so haughty and whose glances are so disdainful. That haughty eyes and a prideful glance, Proverbs says it's disdainful to anyone who is around a prideful person. It's been said that pride is a strange disease. You don't know you have it, but it makes everyone else around you sick. It's that spiral of pride, that it takes that form of rejecting authority, of embracing one's own authority, and then infecting our relationships with that disease of pride that eventually leads to prideful people destroying themselves and everyone else around them. Pride destroys self and others. Verse 14, it's those whose teeth are used as swords and whose jaws are set with knives to devour the poor from the earth and the needy from among mankind. You could say it this way, that pride, it's really, it's like, pride is like a relationship suicide bomber. That pride eventually it blows up the life of the prideful person as he or she takes out everyone else around them. And when it comes to pride, probably one of the most well-known verses in all of the scriptures uh, is actually found right here in Proverbs. In fact, if you didn't grow up going to church or the Bible's kind of new to you, you probably have heard it, maybe not even realized it was a Bible verse. But this is what it says, Proverbs 16, 18, that pride comes before destruction, that a haughty spirit before a fall. And notice what's interesting. It doesn't say that pride might lead to destruction, it says that it will. It will lead to a fall. And here's a really important thing, that when it comes to this topic of pride, that the next step for all of us is not to discern, hmm, I wonder if pride is an issue I should be giving any attention to in my life. Because remember, to conclude that pride is not an issue is only to solidify further the reality of it in your life and the effect of it on you and those around you. And so really the question, the only question for every single one of us is simply this, What are we doing or what are we going to do to push back on pride in our lives? And in a word, the way that we push back on pride, the, you could say the antonym, the opposite, the antidote to pride is humility. That humility is the antidote to pride in our lives. And when it comes to humility, uh, as the saying goes, you could say we could do this the easy way or the hard way. We can do humility the easy way or the hard way. Matthew Henry, Bible commentator of the 17th century, commentating on this verse in Proverbs, you know, that pride comes before destruction, before a fall. He says it this way, that pride, it will have a fall. And it will be brought down either by repentance or by ruin. Or you could say the easy way or the hard way. And so the hard way is to be ruined. The hard way is to, you could say, be humbled. So fresh off the press, a couple of weeks ago, here uh, in our building, we host the Disciple Heritage Fellowship National Conference. And so as the host of that, part of my responsibility is to work with our exhibiting ministry sponsors who help underwrite a large portion of the cost of the conference to kind of keep the excellence up and the cost more affordable to our DH Church attendees. And so 
you know how it is. You're in the final throes of like a big project or an event, and you're trying to cross all the T's. You're trying to dot all the I's. You're moving fast. And uh, in the midst of all that fury, I get an email from the front office saying, uh, regarding one of our particular sponsors, uh, regarding their payment, to which the front office asks, you know, Brian, should we be expecting a check? To which, in haste, I reply, you know, this is what I said. I said, yes, you might have to be the bad guy. Said organization uh, isn't always the best about checking all the boxes on their list. Maybe send another sponsor sheet with a check request. To which, in my attempt to copy and paste the contact's email address from said organization to the front office, I mistakenly leave the email address of the head honcho of said organization, and you know where this is going, in the CC line (laughs) of the email. To which he very efficiently and promptly responds, (laughs) quote, I turned in the document to our accounts payable on Thursday last. A check will be cut and mailed on Thursday tomorrow. Please let me know if you don't receive it by Tuesday of next week. We are trying to check all the boxes. (laughs) Hope the event goes well. Grateful to be a part of it. So I wander into Wayne's office uh, (laughs) with my head positioned as it should. And I'm commiserating what I did and how I messed up. I'm like, oh, you know, just you feel sick to your stomach. And it's an organization that Wayne and I have both been participants at their events of. And uh, it was funny, Wayne, he's he's looking down. He says, you know, uh, Leslie was just telling me the other day, you know, in a few years, Brian's going to be speaking at said event. Uh, to which then Wayne looks up and looks at me and says, well, guess not. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, it's never fun to go the hard way, uh, to find ruin, to be humbled. Uh, But let it be said, as hard as it is to in those moments to be humbled, uh, that the hard way to some extent cannot be fully avoided in this life, that that is a part of it. And to remember It's important that these situations, these circumstances, even though it doesn't feel great at the time, is actually a gift. It's actually a grace because they remind us that we are not in control, that we are not in charge, that when we feel like we're at the mercy of whatever situation or circumstance or event, that to remember that a fall, no matter how small or large, it is an opportunity. It is the gift, it is a grace of God to take that opportunity to then humble yourself, to bring yourself not to the mercy of that situation or that circumstance, but to the mercy of God, to the mercy of God. And so even in the hard way, we can go the easy way and humble ourselves before God. But we must say, it is definitely the preferred path. Why? I don't think there's ever an easy way to pursue humility. We could say that repentance before ruin is definitely the preferred path path. And so when it comes to choosing repentance first, to humble yourself rather than be humbled, uh, that word, that's, that's kind of a fancy church word that gets thrown around and dropped like we all know what it means. But just to kind of, if you were to use that word outside of a religious context, the word repent literally means to change your mind, uh, to literally turn around. So uh, you're, say, heading this way, and you change your mind about the path you're on, and you literally turn from it. You do a 180-degree 180 180 degree turn to head the other way. And so when we repent of pride, we 
you could say, we're not going to beat pride by beating on pride. The only way to beat pride is to turn from pride and instead pursue humility, to pursue humility. And so I want to give you a few thoughts from Scripture on how we can practically in our lives, each and every one of us, pursue humility as we beat back pride by that path. And so if you're a note taker, these might be some things you want to take down and reflect on in the days ahead. Number one that we see in Scripture is that we can beat back pride and pursue humility by serving. By serving. And that sounds really generic, so I want to take it down one more notch. Actually by serving those closest to you. Here's what I mean by that. Philippians chapter two, uh, it has within it this, this is what's considered the oldest writing of the New Testament, the very first uh, writing of the New Testament that was captured and placed there. It's actually a hymn, a song about the character and the nature of Jesus and how we should emulate that. This is how it reads. Philippians says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he chose to make himself nothing. The Amplified Translation says that Jesus stripped himself of all privileges and rightful dignity. He left his God attributes behind by taking on the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And then being found in the appearance of a man, Jesus, it says, he humbled himself. The God of the universe humbles himself and becomes obedient to death, even death in service to us on a cross. And so as we think about the example of Jesus' humility and service and how it is that we can take on his nature of a servant and serving others, sure, there is you could say the importance of living out our opportunities to serve in the church, to serve on behalf of the church, to really accomplish this mission that we become devoted followers of Jesus by serving together. But when it comes to the role of pushing back pride in serving in the pursuit of humility, well, then that's the stuff that actually takes place most in the everyday fabric of life, in your everyday relationships. I mean, that's what Philippians 2 says. It says, in your relationships with one another, have that mindset of Christ Jesus. And so don't misunderstand. I'm not belittling, you know, service projects or service ministries or random acts of kindness. I mean, that's all good. I'm for all of it. But in many ways, that's the easier path. The harder path, where the battle for humility is the most difficult, but where it will be won is within the context of your everyday relationships. Because that's where the challenge is when you serve day in and day out, say in your marriage. To serve uh, in the context of you know, kids honoring your parents. You know, serving if you're in a situation with a roommate. Serving in the workplace, whether that is with your colleagues, your boss, or even, and maybe especially when it comes to your subordinates. Uh, as Jesus, he consistently and constantly, he always takes our life's org charts and he flattens the org chart, even flips it upside down uh, in the way that we understand what it means to serve. In fact, Jesus himself, who is the God of the universe, you know, number one in charge, it says in Mark 10, 45, he didn't come to be served, but to serve and how did he do that? By giving his life as a ransom for many, Mark 10, 45. 
And so what we see Jesus in his living of his life, you could say Jesus as the CEO of his team, his staff of disciples, you've got under him this group who's always arguing and jockeying for position. They all want to be like, you know, VP of marketing and VP of operations next to CEO Jesus. And he takes this moment where he has this last teachable moment after the Last Supper and before his betrayal to death to take his final teaching to get up from that supper, it says, and wrap a towel around his waist to pour water into a basin and begin to wash his disciples' feet. Which he concludes that moment saying this, now that I, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set for you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And as we look at this example of Jesus and wonder how that plays out in, you could say, the, so to speak, real world, I think sometimes we struggle with what washing feet and serving, and particularly in the world that we live in. Uh, maybe, for example, if I, I really want to speak to those of you who I would say are currently in positions of leadership or pursuing positional leadership in, like, you could say, the marketplace or the business world or the real, real world, however you want to say that, um, with this idea in mind that I'm, if I could get inside your head, you might be thinking, okay, humility, serving others, you know, all that. You know, that sounds real nice in like church world, Pastor Brian, you know, where you live in. But here in the real world, to act like a servant, to like go seemingly soft, to humble yourself, like, like that's a death sentence to a successful career in the world where I live. Well, for you, uh, you could say maybe who live in the business world, many of you may be familiar uh, with what has become a household name in the business world, a guy by the name of Jim Collins, who is the best-selling author of Good to Great, Why Some Companies Make the Leap and Others Don't. And what this book is based on, it's based on a study that identified a set of elite companies that made the leap from just good to great. And they sustained those results for at least 15 years, so they weren't a flash in the pan. And so upon discovering these companies, Collins' team did a five-year, you could say like excavation study to determine what it was about these companies, the distinctives that made them stand out head over heels above all the rest. And to the surprise of Collins' research team and the business world alike, they discovered that one of the factors that every single one of these standout companies had was what they called level five leadership at the helm. Level five leadership. So level five leadership is defined as this. It is a paradoxical combination of deep personal humility with intense professional will. In an article of the Harvard Business Review, Collins describes how level five leaders actually manifest this humility. He says, they routinely credit others and external factors for the company's success, even though the data suggests that they had a huge part to do with it. But when results are poor, as the leader, they take the blame and the responsibility. Collins says that in leadership disposition, the way this plays out is that they act quietly, calmly, and determinedly, relying on inspired standards, not just inspiring charisma to motivate. And so the question that was posed to Collins uh, was simply this. 
And it may be the one you're asking if you're in the business world. Like, okay, is this type of leadership necessary? Like, do you have to have it in order to achieve the highest results in the marketplace? To which, for those of you in the business world, this is what I want you to catch. This is what I want you to grab. Uh, Collins responds to that, and he says, I don't know for certain that you absolutely must be a level five leader to make your company great, Collins replied. He said, I will simply point back to the data. Of 1,435 companies that appeared on the Fortune 500 in our initial candidate list, only 11 made the very tough cut into our study. And in those 11, all of them had level five leadership in key positions, including the CEO. And then Collins concludes, he says, it's important to note that level five leadership is an empirical finding not an ideological one. In other words, this is based in evidence and proof, not just in theory. And mind you, this is not a Christian book. This is not a Christian book, but what I love, one of my favorite things are the discoveries that are made, you could say, in the science world or the social sciences and psychology or the business world where something is newly discovered that God's word has been saying for thousands of years. We've got Jesus, who the greatest leader of all time would not be a hard argument. And how did he lead? In humility. He came in humility, Mark 10, 45, not to be served, but to serve. It's been said, and I would agree, that you are never more like Jesus than when you serve. And so if we want to push back on pride and pursue the humility of Jesus, you're never more able to do that than when you're a person of service. And so a couple other ideas on how this can play out and how you can push uh, back on pride as you push into humility in all kinds of serving. Another way we can do that is to be a person who is interruptible and inconvenienced. Be interruptible and inconvenienced. I heard a pastor say recently in an interview that Jesus' entire ministry was actually a ministry of interruptions. It actually went as far as to say that without interruptions, Jesus would have had no ministry. Well, one example of this, of many, but one we'll look at is in Mark chapter 5. Uh, real quickly, Jesus, he's basically on his way to, uh, in response to a synagogue leader, a dad who has a sick 12-year-old little girl who Jesus is going to go uh, provide healing. But in the midst of that journey, he is interrupted by a woman who has been subject to bleeding for 12 years, it says, and she has you know, seen all the doctors and having no success. And with all the crowds pressing in around him, she interrupts Jesus' journey, interrupts his plans to go visit the synagogue leader, and it reports in the scriptures that this woman, she touched the edge of Jesus' cloak and looking for hope, looking for healing, which she did in fact receive. And so in that moment, Jesus stops. And with all these people pressing again, he says, who touched me? And they're like, disciples are like, seriously? No, 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 no. Someone, I saw, I felt power go out of me. And he stops and he meets this woman and he affirms her healing. He blesses this woman. And then from there, he's using this as a teaching moment with his disciples. And all the while it says, Mark 5, 35, in this moment, uh, the scriptures report that while Jesus was still speaking, some of the people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader, and said, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? But Jesus continued anyway. He continued anyway, even though interrupted by the woman in the crowd, he still had the time and the ability to raise this little girl from the dead. It would seem both Jesus' plans and the interruptions to those plans 
were key to Jesus' plan. It would seem that in the plans of Jesus, the interruptions to Jesus' plans were essential to that plan. And look, as I share this, you need to know, I am not preaching this, I am confessing this. I am confessing this. Those who are closest to me, who live with me, who work with me, they know. Uh, I am no shining example of this. Uh, That when it comes to the pride of my plans, uh, to borrow from the Apostle Paul, I am the chief of sinners. And so to push back on this, one thing I try to lean into and try to ask and re-ask is a critical question. It's a critical question. It actually came from Jessica's, uh, my wife's uh, youth pastor growing up, a guy by the name of Todd Clark. I heard him ask this question and it stuck with me and I try to ask it all the time and it's simply this. When was the last time you obeyed a prompting of the Holy Spirit? That as you look at your life's plans and what you have set up, When is the last time you could say, in other words, let those plans be interrupted by a prompting of the Holy Spirit? Or maybe just simply said, when is the last time that you let God's plans interrupt your plan as precipitated by the prompting of the Holy Spirit? And I'll say being open to that question will transform the pride of your plans into the power of God's plans as he works through you, yes, in whatever he's prompting you toward, but then also just as importantly as he's forming his humility in you, as he stops you from building your kingdom and asks you the question, are you gonna help build my kingdom? And so we serve those closest to us. We allow the spirit of God to make us interruptible and inconvenienced for the sake of what he's leading us in. And then a third way that we pursue humility against pride in a lot of situations is just to be quiet. To be quiet. Better said, Proverbs 10, 19. Sin is not ended by multiplying words, but the prudent hold their tongues. Expanding on this idea, uh, Christian author uh, Richard Foster, he wisely explains both the opportunity and why this is so difficult for us. He says, silence, it frees us from the need to control others. But one reason we can hardly bear to remain silent is it makes us feel so helpless. We are accustomed to relying upon words to manage and control others. A frantic stream of words flows out from us in an attempt to straighten others out. We want so desperately for them to agree with us or at least see things our way. And so silence is one of the deepest disciplines of the Holy Spirit simply because it puts a stopper on all of that. Because pride, it is not ended in multiplying words. Humility is not achieved by multiplying words because the prudent hold their tongues. And so as we push back on pride, we pursue humility, we serve in our closest relationships, we become people who can be interrupted and inconvenienced for the sake of what God wants to do in us and through us, we be quiet, and then lastly, uh, and most importantly, we tether our identity to God. This really is almost the first point. This is the umbrella point of all of it, that we tether our identity, we understand who we are in God. First John 3, 1 explains our identity this way says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, that you are a beloved son, a beloved daughter, a beloved child of God, because that is what we are. 
my wife Jessica and I, we were talking recently about how we each, uh, you could say respective to our own teenagers, discovered this reality, this identity of Christ, uh, this grace, really, while we were in high school, albeit by very different paths. Uh, we discovered that, you know, where it's very tempting as a high school student to find all your approval and identity and affirmation and your well-being in what is the approval of your peers or popularity or achievement, but that when you discover as, I will say, as a teenager or kid, and especially as an adult, that your identity is in Christ alone, that you get to live your life for an audience of one and not for everyone else around you, that is a very freeing reality. That in him, we can do life, that we can pursue everything for an audience of one, that we are not approved or affirmed by anything else, but by the reality of what this passage says that we are a child of God, that we are loved, that we are approved, that we are already accepted and forgiven if you have made him the savior and the forgiver of your sin, if you've made him the Lord and the leader of your life. And if you have not yet done that, then I'll be the last to leave. Don't leave. Let's have that conversation about what that looks like eternally. But also, again, if you're new to it or if you've been around it for a long time, the reality of how that plays out here on earth. Because here's what this means. When you live in your identity in Christ rather than all the stuff around you, what that functionally does is, like, for example, when things do get hard, when things are difficult, when you're humbled, when you're going through trials and things aren't going your way, then you, rather than being defined by the situations or the circumstances that bring you down, uh, or I will say on the other side of that, rather than being defined by the wins, the victories, the highs, uh, rather that it's a pity party or being puffed up with pride, that rather than living as like you could say as a caboose on a roller coaster to wherever life's circumstances and situations take you, when you tether your identity to who you are as a beloved son and a beloved daughter of Christ, then instead of living in the circumstances, you live here. It's not like you're untouchable, but you're not touched nearly as much when you understand and you can come back to tethering yourself to who you actually are, despite the ups and the downs. Because make no mistake, it's pride that captures us at both extremes. You know, pride is a, an exaggerated focus on self, whether in the pity party or being puffed up. Either one is pride. And so we beat that pride back when we find our identity, not here or here, but in Christ, in who we are in him. It will change your life, and the peace of Christ will be real. It will be experience. It will be the way you live, not just a ticket to someplace, somewhere, someday. It's a life that says in every day, Lord, like we sang in this hymn, this ancient hymn, be thou my vision. I don't want to heed to man's empty praise. Or the second verse says, be thou my wisdom. Be the artist of the one who is teaching me to live wisely, O Lord of my heart. That line says, not be all else to me. I'm like, that's a tongue twister. Not be all else to me essentially says, nothing else be anything to me save that Accept that thou art. And so tether your vision, tether your wisdom, tether your identity to the Lord alone, and you will live a life that is pushing away from pride and pursuing humility all by his grace and his mercy as a gift to you both in this life and in the next. May it be in the name of Jesus. Amen.